Welcome to this edition of the First Take Podcast. I'm Simon King, an editor for First Word Pharma Plus. On this week's show, I discuss with my colleagues Becky Simon and Michael Flanagan the latest developments for Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine. We look at important updates for two high-profile gene therapy programmes, discuss some expert opinion on the role of early-stage immunotherapy treatment in lung cancer, and cast an eye over Roche's Q1 sales performance. So Becky and Michael, thanks for joining me today. Um, I'll kick off by running through some of the main headline news this week, and then we can maybe delve a little deeper into some of the topics. Um, I I think it would be remiss if we don't um, touch upon recent discussion about what's going to happen next with Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, The company said it expects the FDA to make a decision relatively soon, um, perhaps by the end of the week, as to whether Um, it will recommend uh, resumption of use in the US. Uh, The European Medicines Agency did announce this week that um, labelling for the vaccine will be changed to reflect um, an association with what it describes as a very rare um, blood clotting side effect. Um, Its overall recommendation is that the benefit of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine continues to outweigh any risks. Just on a related note, we ran an interesting survey this week to 44 US infectious disease experts, uh, nearly three quarters of who said that the US authorities had been right to pause their use of the vaccine, though they concede that this does come at a cost. Um, I think 70% of respondents said that they do believe that confidence in that particular vaccine will have been eroded as a result of those actions. you know, we've touched on this previously, I guess, uh, you know, we'll need to see over time what the potential broader implications are for, for all COVID-19 vaccines in the US. Um, and, and I guess, you know, the, the vaccination program is sort of racking up really impressive numbers at the moment. Um, I guess any impact from sort of vaccine hesitancy is, is going to become more pronounced. The closer we move, um, you know, towards the US government's target of, of vaccinating all adults, um, I think we'll, you know it's probably best to move on. We had two um, notable updates in the gene therapy space this week. Uh, firstly, Bluebird Bio said that it's withdrawing its beta-thalassemia gene therapies Integlo from the German market following failed reimbursement negotiations. And although the company remains committed to other European markets, it did say that it's going to be restructuring its operations in the region Um, And as a result, that's going to include uh, an undisclosed number of job losses. Um, Michael, Becky, what do we think is at stake for Bluebird here? Um, So I think sort of an important piece of, you know, context, you know, sort of just as a baseline level to think about this is just remember that, you know, a few months ago, I think it was a few months ago, Bluebird, you know, spun out its, said it was going to spin out its uh, cancer therapy into a separate um, into a separate company, you know, which effectively means, you know, in the context of this news that it's it's gene therapy business um, and this business in particular is sort of exposed and uh, can't be, you know, padded at all by um, 
any uh, better performance uh, from its its cancer business, where you know it just had this um, approval for its CAR T and multiple myeloma. Um, so this obviously, you know, isn't setting you know a great precedent um, for Bluebird in terms of getting a um, a good price point for a gene therapy in Europe. Um, where, you know, we've seen historically, you know, Europe is a very challenging market for, for gene therapies, um, where uh, Unicure um, and some other pharmas have had uh, trouble making a go of it. Um, so what, what, what this says is, you know, starting in Germany had been considered sort of the, uh, the low-hanging fruit as a negotiation point, because this, uh, it's, the market is considered sort of um, more generous in its uh, reimbursement policies. Um, so to not be able to make any traction, um, you know, doesn't bode well for the rest of the European marketplace. Um, though it's probably worth noting that um, while Germany is the best market for uh, reimbursement, it's not necessarily where most of these um, patients live. I believe there's a, you know, a larger incidence of this thalassemia, uh, you know, slash sickle cell disease um, in Italian markets, I think is actually the most prevalent. Um, so, you know, there is, there's certainly some chance that um, the, the company can sort of, you know, regroup and, uh, you know, get deals, you know, down the road in other regions. Um, but having, it, it sets a poor precedent um, in that it's probably going to be starting from a much lower um, negotiation point than it would have had it been able to get, you know, the Germans to agree to um, a more generous proposition. Okay. I'm guessing there's and something. There's one... Sorry, Michael, go on. Yeah, I was just going to say there's one other thing, you know, because basically this Bluebird, their gene therapy business unit, which may become just an entire company, you know, they've also had the clinical hold recently for this same program, which, you know, it seems like they may be on the road to, to clearing up, but it's, you know, they're just sort of jumping from, from problem to problem uh, at a time when you'd expect or you'd want them to be, you know, putting their best foot forward. So, you know, I'm sure investors will keep this in mind. Okay. Um, and then obviously elsewhere this week, we heard that Vertex and CRISPR, who've been working for some time, have amended an existing co-development agreement, which is focused on the development of a, the gene editing therapy called CTX001. Um, this product is currently in studies evaluating its use as a potential curative therapy for sickle cell disease and, um, and beta thalassemia as well. Uh, but, you know, before we get into why Vertex has paid, you know, nearly a billion dollars to change the structure of this deal, can someone sort of give a bit of an explainer on the differences between this gene editing approach and, you know, and, and, and other gene therapies such as the one that we've just been talking about with, with Bluebird? Uh, sure. So, um, as the name suggests, uh, CRISPR's gene therapy involves CRISPR. <laughs> um, so uh, while Bluebird is using a lentiviral-based um, sort of gene transfer, it's just, um, you know, delivering a copy um, of the, uh, you know, hemoglobin gene of interest. Um, what CRISPR is doing instead is um, editing a gene. It's, it's uh, not hemoglobin, but it's a fetal hemoglobin gene um, 
to sort of give it sustained expression um, throughout life of uh, a form of hemoglobin that would normally be um, dormant in adults. Um, so uh, there, there are different safety concerns with each of them. You know, as Michael said, um, Bluebird, Bluebird has been on the hook previously um, for you know various uh, malignancy concerns tied to its lentiviral vector, which they are you know appear to be sort of walking back and you know have it um, have it looking like it's not necessarily um, uh, related to its treatment, but there is this sort of uh, lentiviral vectors have this very um, you know theoretical risk about uh, genomic insertion and any um, uh, you know malignancies that that can cause. While as um, CRISPR has, you know, also has safety concerns, but they're much less, you know, well-defined. You know, they're theoretically lower, but we also, um, we have much less clinical experience with CRISPR. So we can't, you know, confidently say in any direction that, you know, yes, this, this uh, treatment is definitely safer. Okay. And in terms of the amendment, I mean, it seems on the face of it that this is, you know, giving Vertex, um, you know, kind of an expanded role in the development and the potential commer commercialization of this product. I mean, I know that the initial data we saw at ASH last year was was kind of, you know, was pretty impressive looking. I think it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, it's built upon that enthusiasm for this approach, but obviously it's still in a relatively small number of patients. Um, you know, have, we, have you got any thoughts on why Vertex is sort of restacking the deck at this particular point. Um, it's probably worth noting as well that you know, they've signed an agreement with a company called Obsidian Therapeutics today, which is also looking at gene editing. So, I mean, it, will, it would kind of suggest that, that a part of this is just kind of doubling down in an area where, where it sees you know, huge promise, I guess. Yeah, so if you, you know, look at, if, uh, if you do the math, which you know I did not do personally, but lots of analysts did, um, uh, Vertex upfront payment here for its you know 10% increase in you know the uh, profit sharing stake, um, get, you know all suggest Vertex is estimating about a 10 billion dollar market um, for this drug, which particularly when you line it up against uh, Bloomberg's <laughs> Bluebird's news. Um, you know, you see, you know, two uh, different patterns em emerging, you know, for what the, the prospects of these uh, gene therapy markets look like. Um, but it's interesting um, from Vertex's perspective, just it, this is a company that's, you know, been under a lot of pressure to show some um, diversification from its pipeline away from cystic fibrosis, you know, where it has been wildly successful, um, you know, but could soon be ticked facing a sort of, you know, Gilead-like problem of um, having gotten a bunch of patients through one disease and now needing to um, show that it has, you know, the chops to, um, to take on another one. Um, so as a result, you know, they have a whole lot of money they can throw at this problem, which is great that they have this billion dollars lying around that they can uh, put towards, you know, a 10% increase in their stake. Um, and it, it, there is, you know, some speculation that uh, the company is a bit pressured, you know, right now in particular because they've recently had one of their, um, you know, attempts, you know, in-house attempts at um, this diversification fall flat when they had, um, they have had to abandon what had been their uh, lead candidate in their most advanced indication um, outside cystic fibrosis, which was antitrypsin deficiency. 
Um, so this could be a sign that they are seeing um, a, uh, you know, they are losing confidence that this um, in-house program is going to go well and need to um, sort of up the ante um, with their uh, with their other programs. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see on, you know, whether uh, this looks like it's going to be a $10 billion market or not. Um, I guess the good news is having Vertex involved means that, you know, they having Vertex be more involved means that, you know, this could be uh, accelerated relative to um, having CRISPR take a 50-50 stake. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. It's a big sort of question mark for me on um, if uh, this can sort of, you know, live up to expectations. Okay, thanks Becky. Um, let's move away from gene therapy. Um, Michael, we spoke briefly a few weeks back about some new data that was recently presented for Bristol-Myers Squibb's immunotherapy of DEVO as an adjuvant treatment for non-small cell lung cancer. I know that um, it was either late last week or earlier this week, you spoke to an expert in this field. And I was wondering if you could give us a really brief take on his assessment of those results, you know, what they could mean going forward. Um, obviously, we've discussed previously that earlier stage treatment with these immunotherapies is a is a potentially massive opportunity and, and obviously lung cancer, um, you know, if we're breaking this down by tumor type is, 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 is one of the biggest, if not the biggest opportunity there is. So it would be great just to get a kind of a very quick take on, on what the feedback was from the KOL. Yeah, sure. So this is another data point, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the move of anti-PD-1 and PDL one antibodies into this early stage sort of quote-unquote perioperative space in, in cancer right, right around before and right after surgery. Um, so, you know, the news has been a bit mixed on this trend, but this this itself, the, the headline takeaway is that this looks like a, potentially anyway, a really big win for Bristol-Myers Squibb. So specifically, it was the Checkmate 816, a phase three trial, and they top-lined it in October, and they said, you know, uh, Opdivo uses neoadjuvant right before surgery uh, was uh, successful in hitting the primary endpoint of pathological complete response. But without actual data, you know, it's tough to know what that means. So they just re result uh, provided the detailed results from this 816, Checkmate 816 trial. And the result was, uh, according to the KOL who I spoke with, relatively, um, you know, encouraging or exciting. Uh, so they, they had a pathological complete response of 24% versus 2.2% for chemotherapy alone in these uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients. So that difference to him is uh, impressive and would, you, would, would basically um, lead to broad use of Opdivo in the neoadjuvant setting. Uh, he doesn't know if this is going to be enough for approval. You know, there's there's some some debate on whether pathological complete response is really a strong enough surrogate for, um, you know, survival, which is obviously what everybody really wants to know. Uh, he, he, he's leaning towards, yes, this would be enough for an accelerated approval. And if it does, um, you know, that would give Bristol-Myers Squibb the sort of first run the first mover advantage in this perioperative space in the non-small cell lung cancer setting, which to him said, he said it'd be very important. So, you know, this could be a really big win for Bristol-Myers Squibb. 
um, obviously this is a, a setting, specifically this non-small cell lung cancer, where you know they looked like they were going to have the the first go of it uh, with uh, in the metastatic space, and then Merck essentially ate their lunch with Keytruda. So this, you know, it might be a case of a, a little leapfrog going on here. Um, so it should be interesting to watch. Okay, excellent. Um, just to, to finish on today, um, I thought it was worth mentioning that first quarter earnings season has started this week. Um, earlier in the week, we, we saw Johnson & Johnson and, um, and Roche report their results. Um, obviously, Johnson & Johnson's um, earnings um, conference was sort of dominated by, by questions about the, the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, I, I thought Roche, you know, Roche's performance in, in recent months is particularly noteworthy because it's simultaneously facing, you know, two quite distinctive headwinds. Um, Becky, I know you looked at the numbers this week. Can you sort of add a bit of colour on, on what we're seeing with Roche? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, uh, Biosimilars, you know, for, for Roche's um, legacy products, um, Herceptin, Avastin, et cetera, are, um, you know, very much, you know, in investor crosshairs, I guess, um, for Roche moving. This, this has been, you know, a longstanding, you know, well-known issue that Roche was going to have to contend with. Um, and now, at, but now, you know, factors have coalesced, so that is facing, you know, pressure on its pharmaceutical segment, um, both from COVID uh, and then simultaneously uh, with some of this uh, biosimilar pressure. Um, but I guess, you know, the good news for Roche is that, um, you know, diagnostics save the day. Um, and while COVID is, is chipping away at the uh, pharmaceutical business, it's also, um, completely offsetting that by uh, just a huge surge in its uh, diagnostics business. Okay. Um, so it'll, um, so Roche says that, you know, its uh, first quarter impact against biosimilars was, you know, uh, disproportionate and expecting that to sort of smooth out over the rest of the year. Um, but for investors looking at this, um, we know that there will be sort of a second uh, set of the, this loss of exclusivity for programs like um, Lucentis and Ectemra coming up in, um, in 2022, while it's um, next sort of, you know, big clinical readouts um, for things like its Alzheimer's disease program or its Tijin antibody. Um, also aren't generally expected till 2022. So it's a bit of a holding pattern for now for Roche as it kind of works through um, those, uh, you know, headwinds and tailwinds. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting when they were talking about biosimilars. Obviously in Europe, this has been um, something that the company's faced for a few years. And I think I'm right in saying that last year they sort of conceded that the impact from the US has been maybe a, a bit more significant than they were expecting. But I noticed they also said um, this week that they feel that because the um, the biosimilar versions of their, their three older cancer products in the US have sort of almost launched simultaneously, um, that they're, they're kind of as you sort of alluded to, they're hoping to kind of ride out the, the US biosimilar storm this year. And then fingers crossed, if, you know, we ride out the, the I guess, the, the COVID storm at the same time, um, 
2022, um, you know, certainly on the face of it could be um, sort of brighter for the company. I guess on a very, very final point, it's probably worth mentioning that, you know, not too long before before now, before we're speaking, um, Biogen um, also announced its Q1 results, saw its revenues decline by 24% for the quarter year on year. Um, seeing a big hit to um, sales of the multiple sclerosis um, drug Tecfidera due to generic competition and also seeing um, sales of its um, spinal muscular atrophy drug uh, Spinraza hit um, in the US, which is presumably, um, I, I think, slightly kind of pandemic related, but also due to, to competition. Um, I know we've spoken about this pending decision on aducanumab, you know, time and time again, but it really kind of, these results really kind of put into context um, what a massive, um, you know, binary event that's going to be for the company, I think. Absolutely. Biggest coin flip in, in industry history. Thanks for listening to the First Take podcast. For daily pharmaceutical news and analysis, please visit firstwordpharma.com.